Back in the late 60s and 70s, Chris Carter was having the time of his life, racing and riding motorcycles. Then in the mid-80s, he started a company called Motion Pro. It's sort of as a way to live and breathe motorcycles full-time. Chris attributes much of his full life of adventure, friends, and success to that two-wheeled beast we all love, the motorcycle. Today, some musings of motorcycles and the story of Motion Pro, and probably a bunch more. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Fair. Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Chris Carter. I live in Northern California, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, born and raised here. And uh, I'm the founder of Motion Pro Incorporated, which I started approximately 38 years ago. Chris, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, thanks for having me, Jim. You you grew up in sort of the what I I like to think of anyway. At least when I hear it, it's like these the heady days of motorcycling. When I think of that era, and I'm not from that era, but when I think of that era, I don't know. Just everything just seemed to be getting going. It seemed like all the great names came from that. Do do you feel that? Like is is that how you sort of see that era? Maybe it's just nostalgia. I don't know. No, I I I totally agree with you, and 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 I I guess I can say I lived it, and. You know, the old timers, what I call old timers, when I first got started in the late 60s, mid 60s, uh, they were telling me how great it was when they were growing up back in the <laughs> 40s and 50s, especially after the Second World War. Um, but, uh, yeah, here in Northern California, we had lots of riding opportunities. Uh, you could go further north, up into way up into the Redwoods, uh, whether it's off-road or uh, great paved roads to ride. Uh, we used to be able to ride, you know, starting out back, my first real dirt bike was a 65, 1965 Greaves. Now, a lot of your uh, listeners may not know what a Greaves is. They were a, a British-built bike that's an aftermarket engine called a Villers, um, and they built mostly motocross and trials bikes and some enduro-type machines. And uh, that was my first real off-road bike. And I can remember leaving my parents' house when I was 16, 17 years old, and taking off meeting my buddies up in the skyline area, which is the mountain range between the San Francisco Bay and the, 
the Pacific Ocean, which is another 20 some miles away. And we'd ride all day. In fact, sometimes we'd ride out to the coast and ride down the beach. And, you know, today we, we can't do any of that, mm-hmm. at least in California, right on the beach. And uh, so, yeah, it was a great time to ride. And, and we, we'd go on a weekend, a Sunday morning ride, say, it'd be an all day ride. And you'd ride with guys that are national caliber racers that were, you know, in the off season, it'd be trail riding and doing things like with the local guys like myself. And then during the racing season, they're at the Astrodome and Daytona and, you know, all, all the national events throughout the country. So I was really blessed for me. And I was one of the few who was able to do these types of things, just happened to timing things. And so I was very blessed to be able to ride with what came to be later on some of the greats. Isn't there a, some sort of get together in British Columbia, Canada for, for Greece motorcycles? There's, there's, I know there's, there's, for years, there's one here in Northern California, actually in the Monterey area, um, Greaves Days. And uh, it was started back, I am mean, 40 years ago. Um, but yeah, it was a well-received brand. They went out of business, I think, in towards the late 70s. They couldn't keep up with, with what was going on with the Japanese bo- dirt bikes. Mm. And, you know, the whole British motorcycle empire basically fizzled uh, about that time. Uh, and, you know, we've had survivors like Norton and, and of course, you know, Triumph has made a resurgence in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, there's, you know, the British had probably 15 or 20 brands of motorcycles back in the day. You mentioned that first dirt bike you had. Now, do you come from a family of riders? Not at all. Um, my father never rode bikes. I just, I started riding a, a friend's mini bike in their backyard at probably with 12 or 13 and their older kids in the neighborhood had bikes and uh, you know, the Honda fifties were just getting, becoming popular uh, in the, in the late fifties. And you, you, the, you remember the slogan, you meet the nicest people in the Honda. Sure. Well, everybody had a Honda back in the day, you know, teenagers. And, uh, and it was a unique time. Also uh, kids didn't have all the distractions they have now. So far as um, you, y- you, you had to entertain yourself and a motorcycle was a great way to do that. What got you into racing? Did, did you come across an event or something? Like just, that? just, I'd always had a passion for, I just started with riding motorcycles and hanging out of the motorcycle shop and uh, getting a job in a motorcycle shop. And uh, I happened to also, uh, after my paper route, I would uh, go to this fellow's house. I just happened to meet that was in the dirt bikes and he uh, had a patent on a product and I would sit in his garage and assemble these parts. And uh, then he introduced me to a local motorcycle dealer and I started working there on Saturdays. And it just happened that that dealership in Redwood City was really had a, a lot of, back then flat track was a big thing. Motocross really had, didn't start here until the late sixties. And uh, in the day we would here in the San Francisco Bay area within 50 miles of where I lived, there were probably five or six racetracks. When I say racetracks, flat tracks, short tracks, TTs. And then as motocross started, there are a lot more clubs and clubs put on events. So flat trackers in the summer months from, say, April through September, you could ride three, four nights a week and day races and like a Thursday night race someplace, a Friday, a Saturday, Sunday. So there's a lot of activities. Uh, And so motorcycles uh, and bikes are at the time, relatively expensive compared to the day. But, you know, a new tire for a dirt bike was $20. Uh, 
and a tube was $3. So things have really changed over the years. Well, to put it in perspective, what were you making back then? I mean, I think I found my time card for my work in this motorcycle shop in, uh, in high school is $1.25 an hour. Oh, wow. So that is an expensive <laughs> tire. Holy. So there was a lot of people running worn tires, I'll bet. Unlike now where everybody yeah. runs brand new all the time. Right. Right. And you learn to work on your motorcycles too. I mean, the, the bikes, you had to learn how to finesse your bike to finish even a day trail riding because the two stroke engines, uh, they weren't as, as uh, sophisticated as they are now. And they're very simple, but you became a pretty good mechanic if, if you fooled with motorcycles. Uh, if you had to take care of it yourself. So being into racing, did you have sort of the aspirations thinking that you would become a, a top racer sort of thing? Is that what you're going for? Is it just for the fun of, of getting well, involved? Just one thing led to another and, and started, you know, reading motorcycle magazines. And in the 60s, uh, I was reading about, for instance, Bud Eakins and Steve McQueen. And you know the name Steve McQueen. Mm -hmm. He was an avid motorcycle racer and he rode the international six-day trials in 1964, 65, I forget which year. And so yeah, I followed that. And, you know, news wasn't instantaneous. You, you had to wait for the magazines to come out or the, the weekly motorcycle newspaper. So um, so I just started following things like that and, and started going to Enduros and uh, off-road, other off-road events. And just, you know, loved it. And uh, I've just stayed with it, well, for the last 50-some years. And you end up at the, the ISDT, ISDT? Uh, well, it was ISDT, International Six-Day Trials. They changed the name uh, to ISDE back about 20 years ago. Uh, I'm, I don't have my exact dates of that. But uh, originally, it was called ISDT, International Six-Day Trials. And that event has been going on for 90-plus years, and it's other than the war years. And each year, it's held in a different country. It's, it's equivalent to the Olympics, but for motorcycles. And the goal is to finish. You have six days of racing and the basic rules haven't changed over the years. You have six days of racing and no one can assist you. And your bike is impounded each day when you finish riding and you're the only person who can work on the bike and certain parts are marked so they cannot be changed. And you can change tires and tubes and certain items you can replace, but the major components you cannot change. They're marked and actually sealed uh, so that they can't be tampered with. Um, and each, when I was riding, my first uh, six days was 1975. And in order to qualify for six days, uh, back then there'd be about 300 riders in the United States bidding for maybe 30 spots. And so you, you would have two, two and three day qualifying races um, like uh, we'd have one or two in Oregon, uh, back in Michigan, Texas, uh, back in Alabama. So you travel around the country doing these two-day races and they'd figure out who had, who were the best 30 guys and that's who you'd go with. And that's who they pick as a team. Um, I was very fortunate before I got in the six days, I was racing motocross and there's this dealership I worked at in the early seventies was very connected with Yamaha and I was doing pretty good racing motocross. Uh, Yamaha was coming out with a new purpose built motocross bike called it a DT two MX. And I got a pre-production model. It's like a test rider. And so early on I had an association with Yamaha because of that bike. And I was traveling to leaving your van and I'd be gone for three months racing around the country in motocross. 
times. And, um, and I, I realized early on that I wasn't the same level. I would never be the top guys at the time were like Brad Lackey, uh, Gary Jones, Jimmy Weinert, uh, fellas like that. And I figured early on, I was never going to be, I wasn't as good as they were. And I no match, no matter how much I practiced, no matter what I did, I was not going to be at their level, but I really enjoyed riding. So I started concentrating more on off-road after I realized this of a couple of years of traveling around the country. And, and you, you made money. Well, you tried to make money, but I just was surviving. What do you mean, making I, money of the races? Oh, yeah, you're paid. You, 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 they're, you're a prize money. You pay down to like 10th, 12th place. So you had enough money to get to the next race. But when you say living in your van or, or say taking a van, you know, many people nowadays will think sprinter van. <laughs> you know, no, nice this conversion. is a Dodge. My first one was a used 1970 Ford Econoline van that I bought from an actual pretty famous racer back in the day uh, named Jimmy Odom. And he got a new van. So I got his old van. It already had 200,000 miles on it. So it had a bunk in it. And you, you caravan, you're like gypsies. You'd carry, you had a caravan with other guys and you'd go from race to race. And I would leave here, oh, might be gone for a month, six weeks, and go back east uh, and ride four or five races in a row and work your way back home. You said there that um, you you realized at one point that you weren't going to ever have what those top racers had. Why? Why? What? What is it? What is it about the the top racers? What is it that you felt that you didn't have or you couldn't get? Um, just maybe I just I just you have to have a total package, you know. And I just I felt I didn't have the total package to ride at the same level as those guys did around the track. But and I seemed to be more comfortable riding tr- off road terrain and reading terrain and riding all day, not just a half hour, 40 minute sprint of a, at a motocross. Mm. But, and these off on the off-road races, you're riding, you know, all day um, or a hair scrambles or something where it's a, maybe a three hour race. And, and uh, I, the rougher the racetrack or the conditions, I did really well when I was wet and muddy. And I just, for me, I, for whatever reason, I know if it's from growing up here where we rode a lot in the mud and, and and we'd ride no matter what was raining or heat or hailing or whatever. We'd always be dirt bike riding. So it, I was always comfortable in those in that environment. It often makes me wonder because you know you you get some people obviously who seem to just excel at this, and you, you can't be born obviously with any sort of riding skills. So it does make you wonder, you know, where, where does that come from? Where, where does that sort of innate riding ability or that that magic that some people have that the rest of us don't? Where does it come from? You know, or is it luck? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of things. Um, and there's, there's a lot of luck involved. I mean, uh, there's a lot of times I was very fortunate that uh, survived some different, you know, near misses, like right? you've probably experienced yourself, you know, uh, with different obstacles or, or things coming in your direction. And, and that, you know, one second can make a, a big difference in uh, your, the outcome of something. Mm. Uh, you mean if it went the other way? In other words, you, exactly. you, I know I often talk about this, you know, we'll, we'll look, listen to a story and you'll think, how could anybody be so stupid? But then I have to say that, you know, you've probably had the, the knife fall off the counter and you've reached out and snatched it before it hit the right, ground exactly. and thought that was dumb, but it worked out. But if it could have went the other way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's just like, I'm sure you've experienced it. You're on a back road and you may be a little bit too far to the left and here comes a car going way too far to the right. And you know, it's just that near, those near misses that really get your heart going mm-hmm. uh, and the adrenaline flowing. And uh, 
things could, the outcome could have been totally different if you're two feet over. Yeah, the crossroads really, aren't they, for us? And, and it's, um, it's happenstance of, of how it works out. Uh, it, it's pretty amazing. So, and I've been very fortunate, Jim, and, and not to uh, compare to some of my other friends. And, uh, I've been very fortunate injury-wise over the years. Mm-hmm. And it's a risk, but I think it's a risk and a reward. And I think, especially dirt bikes, you, you, you learn early on that you're responsible for your actions. Meaning that, that that what what's happening right now uh, could affect you know you years to come, mm-hmm. and and you know making the wrong decision, and maybe and that's going back to your question about my racing motocross. I just I didn't feel comfortable, I guess, or knowing there's more to it than just going all out in a motocross race. Yeah, that's what and I was thinking when you were saying that. I was thinking it, it, it's almost, it sounds to me like your passion wasn't there. Your your passion was really in the dirt. You liked the, you liked the, like you said, the mud and you liked it slightly different style. Right. I, I like the endurance aspect of it. And also the machine aspect of it is that keeping the bike going and, and, and learning the finesse of the bike, how, what you could push, what you could do, just how hard do you hit this? The obstacles so you don't get a flat tire. You know, just different things like that. Because that flyer, flat tire is going to set you way back on your timing. Mm-hmm. Your time, of, you know, because it's all, these are all timed events, the six days. So, uh, so yeah, I, anyway, and that led me to, uh, I rode the six days. First one was really a magical place. It was on the Isle of Man. Now, we think of the Isle of Man as just strictly road racing, but they've had, as I said earlier, they move the six days around each year. Like right now, it's going on in Italy, and I'm not sure where it'll be next year. And, and because of what happened to the world this last year with COVID, they postponed the race a year. So they really miss it. First time that I'm aware of that they actually missed a year other than during the wars, First and Second World War. So they went back to the same spot where it was scheduled in uh, 2020 in Italy, and the teams are there now. This is the third day going to the third day of the six days. And the U.S. has a team, and they're running second or third right now. How many times did you go to the ISD? I, the first year was Isle of Man, and, uh, and it's, it's a revolution. And then next year was Austria. And the last year that I competed was in Czechoslovakia. And, and that was a unique time because that, you saw the Iron Curtain. And it's exactly what you thought. You went across this no man's loan, the land in a bus, and they checked, you got out the border and they went through all your stuff and you had to change your money at the border. And, and uh, they, they, you could be stopped leaving the country to account for what you spent it on. And, and so it was, and, and some of the riders who, it had been in, in Checo five or six years prior to this. And, uh, American writers, the guys, English guys said, don't change all your money at the border. Wait, get inside. And we're, we're there four or five days before the event starts. You're getting your bikes ready and creating them and working on them and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they said, these guys are going to come around and say they're independent bankers. And they'll give you twice as much the exchange rate as what you can get at the border. And and sure enough, a day or two after we got there, these guys come around in the overcoats. And they, would, they wanted American money for when they snuck people out of the country they'd have American money and they'd give you twice the exchange rate as you get at the border. And then I brought back all kinds of crystal that I, you go in, everyone's on a dole. 
you'd go into a store, you'd buy something like crystal to bring home as a souvenir, and maybe you paid uh, the equivalent of $50 for it, and it's a real bargain, And but they'd write up the receipt that it was $20, so that you, everyone's so you could spend more money system. with them and you wouldn't have to be accountable for it sort of thing. If you got stopped. Right. So, and then back then, a big deal was to bring new Levi jeans in. So guys would bring jeans and trade for stuff. So we lived great while we we're there, but the food wasn't that good in Checo. In fact, they just, in a, in a rush to build all the accommodations for the event in this town of Bratislava, they built this six-story hotel and they really didn't finish it. And we came back to our rooms one night and from the fourth floor down, all the floors were flooded because some water pipe broke. So it was an adventure. The whole thing was an adventure, but a great time. And the reason they're, they're, they want your money, they're doing the exchange. They're, they're not worried about the exchange rate at all. They want it for no. smuggling purposes. Exactly. Yeah. So Back then. So, you know, it was, you know, traveling around like that. What a great experience for, you know, someone in their early 20s to be able to do yeah. uh, and uh, so motorcycles have given me a lot over the years. Um, and at the, that time, that was in 77. Um, in 74, I started work. I left the motorcycle shop prior to that. And I was working for a company called Rocky Cycle. Um, and they were, uh, and they are still in a business. Well, they actually changed hand a couple of times. You may have heard of Tucker Rocky. Sure. They're a distributor that would sell products to dealers. And, uh, my job at Tucker when I went to work Tucker Rocky in 74 when I went to work for them and they let me take off time because they realized it was good for the company to have me out there representing their products and also my association with the Omaha because I was riding factory Omaha off road bikes I was I missed a little bit there I I was a development rider in 75 through 78 for Yamaha on their off road bikes they're what they call the IT version that, that came out. Uh, in 76. A development so was, rider. So you, you're paid uh, to test their bikes? Well, I, they paid for all my expenses and uh, giving me motorcycles and they sent guys to the races and I had a manager. In fact, he had ridden the six days back in the 60s um, and he developed that motorcycle with a team at Yamaha. And I'm still friends with a lot of folks at Yamaha, even to this day that's, that haven't retired or have retired. Um, so yeah, I was... Uh, a paid tester and would give them feedback and they'd, I'd be a guinea pig. And that was the one thing when I started with Yamaha, you know, you never knew if the bike would make it because there's a lot of experimental parts. And we did did a lot of testing when, and, and the guys that had at Yamaha working on it were uh, very conscious. They wanted me to finish. So, you know, their whole thing was to make sure the bikes would work well. Wasn't that kind of frustrating though? Uh, I mean, sort of being a bit of a guinea pig? Well, but it was worth it because I had, you know, if it all worked out, I had a great association with the Omaha and he just took that chance. And, you know, I've had good, I had confidence in the bikes because of, I've just spent a lot of time on Yamaha's prior to that. And, uh, but that was just all part of the risk. Um, you know, I get flown to the races. I got a, a travel allowance and just a lot of guys that were really were just scraping by to qualify for six days. And in the six days, it's really it, there are very few of us at the time that were, I'll say, paid. Mm-hmm. So much is like an amateur. Uh, but uh, but but even endeavor. when you're saying paid, 
you're sort of just barely getting enough to do what, do what you did, like just survive. Exactly. Yeah. You still had to have a full-time job. And I was lucky being in the motorcycle industry that, um, I could, uh, you know, they would let me take the time yeah. off because I was, I was in the industry. How tough of a ride is, um, six day ISDE, what it is today? Like, well, it's, it depends on what country's putting it on. And, uh and they can change the time schedule every day. If they see that it's too easy, and it's, it's, it's you're riding on public roads and then you go off into the woods. It's sort of like doing an adventure bike ride, but you're on lightweight motorcycles. You might down, ride down a pavement for a few miles and then you, and it's not GPS, it's all marked by arrows and, and, and different markings. And then you go through the woods. You might be on gravel roads, tight trails, and uh, you're p- competing against the clock the whole day. Uh, and you have prescribed time that you have to be at the next checkpoint. It might be uh, 50, 40 miles from the last checkpoint. So like a rally, like, so, so you, exactly. you lose, yeah, right. So you lose points for, or you, or you can lose for being too early or being too late. Right. Well, you get to a checkpoint and it's marked. So, you know, where, but you don't know exactly where the checkpoint is, but then you, when you get up on the checkpoint, there are these flags and you, you can go through the first set of flags, but if you go across the second set, you, that's when your time is taken. So you wait till it's your minute. But sometimes a guy who gets behind, he he's already, he's supposed to be, might've been there two minutes ago. Well, he's hauling ass to get through, to get through that second set of flags. Right. And they take your time. And it's all by the So back the then, second. what were you using to time yourself and everything? Well, obviously you don't have, you, you know. You I didn't. Can, I mean, you had, you just, you didn't, you couldn't use any type of instruments. When back, you just had a wristwatch and you'd write down your key time, what time you're supposed to be at the checkpoints. And what, what most guys would do, and it's, and be so many riders per minute would leave. So you'd always, for me, I'd always try to have a cushion. So I would ride up on a guy who left two or three minutes ahead of me and ride with them or pass them if they're slower. So you always want to ride ahead because you knew if you got to the checkpoint, you just didn't check through until it was your minute. And there is, there's clocks to telling you when your minute was up. So thinking about today's racing, aside from the technological advances, what, what kind of difference do you see? Or what, what do you see that, you know, that is the big difference between, sorry, yesteryear and today's racing? Well, the speeds are a lot higher. And, and, and you mentioned technology is a big key to that. And, you know, now we have moose tubes. So fellows aren't as worried about getting flats. Uh, the wheels are much stronger. The brakes are 10 times as good. The clutches are really good. There are six-speed transmissions. I mean, then you have things like... Um, the uh, recluse clutch, so it's you know it has a slipper clutch, the automatic clutch. I mean, all these things make it so much easier, and so guys are going a lot faster. Right, and you can abuse the bike a lot more now and sure. be forgiven for it. I mean, we we see that with right. everything, right? Right, and when we were when I was racing, uh, you know, the technology of suspension it was just starting to change. When I started, uh, bikes is a big deal to have about four inches of travel in the rear and maybe six or eight in the front. So, you know, now for conversation, we almost have double that. Right. So there's probably a, um, there's, there's a skill that's, that's disappeared then the, the art of keeping your, of riding hard enough to be fast, as fast as you can go without wrecking your bike. I mean, nowadays it's probably exactly. fairly hard to push it that hard. Well, but they're, they're pushing harder and faster because everyone has, you know, the, the, the bikes are so much better. 
So they're going that much faster. Yeah, but less, there's less worry now. They don't break down like they did before. No, no the, especially the motor-wise, you know, unless they really do something that, uh, with water cooling. That's the other thing. These bikes are all two-stroke water-cooled bikes and four-strokes are were uh, air-cooled, you know. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of things. I've grown up with a lot of changes. And, and that was the other thing. You, As suspension change, there's a lot of experimentation about wheel travel and how much and and change the where the countershaft sprocket was in relation to the swing arm pivot and they're having problems with keeping chains on the bikes uh so much so many things that we take for granted now that have been worked out over the last 20 years um, so how do you think you would do if you were starting out today um well, you know, I'd have all this experience and that would be one thing if I, <laughs> if I had the body of a 20 year old. Well, that's what I mean. Like if you, now, if you were sort of yeah. young now and you were right. starting it now. Yeah. It's, it'd be a lot, in a way, a lot tougher, at least for us here in California, we don't have the riding opportunities we used to have. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I look back now, gee, if I had my, I have a 250, like I have a 250 Husky, uh, uh it's, you know, water cooled fuel injected, oil injected, you know, 11, 12 inches of travel, you know, disc brakes. If I had that, I had that bike 30 years ago, you know, and I was the only one with one, you know, I would, there'd be no, no competition. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. I mean, and I guess what you're saying is the opportunity, you know, because you could ride so many more places, you honed your skills on a daily basis. And you rode with a lot. You had a lot more guys to ride with, you know, you, you just, um, and that's, you know, I, and I can say this, I'm concerned uh, with motorcycling. Right now, we have a lot of new riders coming on because the last couple of years, motorcycles have really picked up um, in popularity in certain parts of the country. And the electric bikes, I think, have opened up some things. You know, we do have some challenges with mileage and so on. Um, but uh, yeah, I, with young people now, I have so many other, dis- I'll call them distractions. Um, and they don't seem to be as mechanically inclined as, or interested as they were back when I was growing up. Uh, so, um, I hope we can keep things going and cause it's, there's my opinion and it's, it's all jaded that there's nothing like motorcycles, whether it's your bike, a trail bike, a street bike, whatever, there's just that freedom of a motorcycle that I can't compare to anything else. Well, part of that, though, what you just mentioned about the people not being as interested is the barrier to entry. Back when when we were younger, engines were much simpler. Carburetors yes. were were king, and they're they're easy to understand. It's the type of thing you can always take apart on the side of the road, at the side of the trail, and um, and fiddle with and get back together. Nowadays, this technology, as we know, is is far more advanced than that. So, working is on a bike is much more daunting. And in many cases, I would say nowadays with new bikes, uh, a lot of stuff is, is strictly relegated to the dealer, particularly when it comes to dealing with any sort of the computer, onboard computers that we have. Oh, and I, I have a perfect example of that. And you probably experienced yourself. We were on a adventure bike ride around the state of uh, Idaho. In fact, a year ago right now. And it's put on by a dealer in Boise. And uh, there's about 20 of us. And a lot of the guys had their you know, adventure bikes with every kind of electronic gadget on it. Um, but for whatever reason, we had all kinds of mechanical, not, I'll say electricals, not really mechanicals. One of the uh, 
participants had borrowed uh, an Africa twin and he didn't realize all the different modes. He was trying to go up a hill and he had it on like highway mode or something and a loose gravel hill and he burned the clutch out of it. But, you know, that, <laughs> but he just wasn't familiar enough with the bike to know he had all about half a dozen different settings uh, for, for the traction control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had another fellow who had so many wires on the thing for all these accessories, heated, besides heated grips and so on and GPS and all this. And it was a, about a five or six year old bike. And luckily we had the, the top, that dealer, his top service guy was with him. And, but we spent all night in the parking lot trying to get the things going again, you know, jumped it with jumper cables and, you know, just everything. And he finally had to rent a truck and go, you know, go home. And he's, you know, halfway across the state. And it's all related to his modifications. Right. I yeah. think so. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure. I but yeah, or some, some, the black box, you know, was take, taking a dive. Well, that's one of the things we, we've talked about this before on this show about um, going after all the mods. People often get a bike and, they, and then they look online to find what are all the mods I need to do for this. And they'll do all right. the mods at once. And then they've got this bike that they is doing something and they have no idea what, what the, the cause is because all the mods have been done at once. And not only that, they've all been done without any sort of consideration of does it apply to me, you know, and, mm-hmm. and my ride mm-hmm. style. But, and here I'm in the aftermarket business, so I don't want to uh, bad mouth them, but yet, you, you know, think about what you're installing on a bike, especially when you're going to go cross country or be in the back country someplace and 50 miles from civilization. Uh, and especially if you're by yourself to get out. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, and getting the current bikes, um, I love all kinds of motorcycles. And, but if I could have one bike and this, I'm not saying this is an endorsement for KTM or Husky, but that 700, 690 series single is a great kind of all around bike. And God forbid I could only, if I could only afford one motorcycle, that would probably be the bike for me. The KTM. I can, yeah. That 690 or 701 Husky. Cause it's just, it's just a great all around bike that you, you can kind of do everything with within reason. So are you talking like, are you talking CC size? Is that what you're saying is was great about yeah, them? Or single you- cylinder, big enough that you go down the highway and, and yet in a way you, you, if you remember what you're riding, you could go on, you know, fairly technical single track, not real, real technical, um, without being, and, and, but great gravel road bike and that sort of thing. Right. And well, what do you still see? Carries. What do you see as the disadvantage of the, of the twin cylinder? Oh, nothing. I'm just saying it's just it's a little more a lighter, narrower bike. Right. Um, and, and for me, uh, that the new some of the newer uh, 800cc twins are, are great bikes too. But uh, it all depends on what you're going to do. And I'm uh, I, I just like the li- I like the some guys and and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are have giant saddlebags and all the stuff and camp and stuff and they can be survive on their own for a week out there someplace um i just for me i like the feel of a lighter weight bike that i can enjoy the ride i'm and and not be have the extra 100 or 200 pounds of stuff with me so So. do you do you camp from your bike no i'm not a camper (laughs) i like (laughs) i like to ride and we'll do backpacks and we'll stay in hotels like we've done some rides all around the state of Nevada. Um, I, we've, I've, you know, I've done 
the Transamerica Trail three times, uh, actually two and a half times. And uh, I happened to meet, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar to TAT mm-hmm. and uh, met Sam Correa. And what a great guy he is. You know, he's in his 80s. And I can't believe, you know, I think it, it was about 12 years he spent developing the basic route from east to west. And, uh, uh, but if someone really wants to, to my opinion, that's a great way to see the United States if you want to be in a, on an adventure type bike is the Trans-America Trail. And the other that, that I really enjoyed, we did the Continental Divide from right above Idaho in the Canadian border down to the Mexican border in New Mexico. And that was a great 12-day ride. Two great rides going opposite directions. Yeah, and I'm not done uh, south to north. I'd like to do that sometime. to take just a short break. I got a few things I want to tell you about, but when we come back, Chris talks about starting Motion Pro, Malcolm Smith, riding your age, and a bunch more. Stay with us. It clamps onto your handlebar very easily. It feels, looks, and lasts like a quality watch, but most importantly, it adds to your riding experience like no other. It's the Atlas Throttle Lock. Now, what does it do? Well, the Atlas Throttle Lock holds your throttle in position so you can relax. So, you know, those long stretches where you get sort of tired of that cramped position with your throttle, you just move your thumb over and press a button that gives a firm feel. It's it's very distinct and you know what you're pressing when you're pressing on it. Just the right amount of feedback and the throttle is locked. If you need more speed, come to a hill, no need to release it. You just Twist the throttle, add a little more speed and release, and it holds that that throttle position. Same thing if you have to decrease the throttle. When you want to shut it off, you move your thumb over to the other button and click on that other button. And, and the buttons have such serious, positive feedback. The whole thing is is um, craftsmanship. You, you, just, you could see it right from the start. And right from the look, the feel, and the activation and deactivation of it, it's all quality craftsmanship. And it not only... Is it craftsmanship in the part, but it changes the way you ride. I've got it on my bike and I absolutely love it. Have a look at it. It's called Atlas Throttle Lock. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Atlasthrottlelock.com. See and be seen with Cyclops Adventure Sports. This is the place to go for motorcycle lighting. Cyclops is a family-owned and run business. It's also a family of riders. They make every kind of light you can imagine, and um, some you actually won't imagine because they're so unique, like the Evo Turn Signal inserts. The Evo Turn Signal inserts. I love these things because I've got them on my bike. They turn your, your turn signals, which in many cases on most bikes, they only come on when you put on your signal and they flash, but they turn them into serious, bright driving lights in the front and then super, super bright brake lights and tail lights in the back. So now that's putting something into use that wasn't before, but not only that, it commands attention. When, when I tap that brake light in, in, in any sort of darkness at all, I can see it reflecting back down the road in my mirror um, on off of all the lights. It's just incredible. Uh, they also make... Um, 
CAN bus plug and play systems. They make LED bulbs, the LED headlights, all from people who know. People are riders just like us. Cyclops Adventure Sports. The website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Please throw in there anytime you're dealing with them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Cyclopsadventuresports.com. A larger foot peg disperses your weight and makes your ride more comfortable. Simple as that. A wider foot peg also gives you added leverage when using your foot pegs to control your motorcycle. But changing a foot peg design also changes the relationship or at least can change the relationship with your brake and shifter, which is why you want to go with a company that knows how to design these things so that it doesn't hinder your performance. It maximizes what you can get out of foot pegs. It adds to your control, adds to your ride, and gives you more control than what you had with the stock pegs. That's the whole point. IMS Products has been making parts for motorcycles since 1976. And when they design a part, they put all those years of experience into it. Just look at any off-road racing circuit and how many riders run IMS products on their bikes. IMS makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, all of cast certified 17-4 stainless steel, all built in the USA, all have a lifetime warranty. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. It was the mid-80s that um, you started Motion Pro. Can you, can you talk right. about how that happened? Sure. I was working for, as I said earlier, I was working for kind of a Rocky Cycle, uh, and, which was a distributor selling to dealers. And at the time, there were about a 1,000 dealers in the United States, uh, aftermarket dealers that we would sell product to. And, and so this is where dealers would buy their tires and tubes and oils and other accessories from all the major, and we would represent the major products. And some, I... Uh, uh, had been there 10 years and I, I was 33 years old and uh, had an opportunity to start my own business. And, and it was nothing glamorous. It was just replacement control cables. No one was really doing a good job with OEM style replacement cables. And I saw that when I was at Rockies, uh, that it was, uh, there's just an opportunity there. And I hooked up with a, a manufacturer. In fact, I still do a lot of, quite a bit of business with them and from Taiwan. And at the time, in 84, Taiwan wasn't known for their quality, but I visited the factory, saw that they had the same equipment that that the Japanese cable manufacturers that were supplying the OEMs were using. Uh, they supplied all the domestic uh, Hondas and Yamahas were being built in Taiwan. And so I worked out a partnership with them and be their exclusive on cables and just developed the cable, a real clean way to, for dealers to buy uh, replacement cables other than OEM that are a realistic price and consolidated part numbers and did a lot of research. And so that's what I started with. And, you know, the motorcycle industry is a large industry, but a small industry. And I was very conscious of this, that I never burned any bridges. And so when I started, I went to who were used to be my competitors when I worked for Rockies and they became some of my best customers. And I left Rockies on very good terms. They started buying my product. So um, it, it just, uh, it worked out great. And then a couple of years into that, uh, a friend of mine that uh, was supplying a few motorcycle tools, some tire irons and, and uh, chain breakers and a few sparkle wrenches, different things like that, two Rockies. Um, he got off building aviation parts and wasn't paying attention to his motorcycle side of it. So I acquired that in 89 or 89. And that gave me a whole nother area to grow the company. And it's not just me. You know, I started with myself and one part-time person and 
Now our staff is hovers around 50 people. We sell to internationally throughout the world uh, to distributors. And I've been, it's given me the opportunity to travel different places and, and visit uh, our, my customers. And I've had customers come here. Now, when you, I know you mentioned me before, one of the things was, was about those cables that you started to manufacture at the first, back in the mid eighties, was um, the interchangeability. You, you somehow made cables fit a whole bunch of bikes, whereas normally a dealer would have to st- stock a whole bunch of cables, for one for each bike, each different model or whatever. And you exactly. sort of narrowed that down. Yeah. Well, Honda was really notorious for this and, and they're so, they're so precise. If say they had a, a 350 Honda and had a certain speedometer cable on it, but they decided that they needed to extend the sheathing, not the length of the cable, but the little sheathing that may uh, stop abrasions a half inch, uh, they would issue a new part number for it. Whole new so, cable. Right. And so the next year model, they had a different part number, but it's really the same cable. Mm-hmm. And for most people, it wouldn't make any difference. Or if they change the color of a fitting from, so like a neural nut or something, from black to a black finish to, to a CAD plate, they'd change the different part number. So all these little nuances, they would change numbers. So for instance, there's one number we've had for years um, that replaces 40-something Honda speedometer cable numbers. Oh. So how do you do that? Well, we I would get back then, I'd get one of each of these part numbers and lay them all out and figure out, well, this is the same as that, but oh, there's a different thread. So it is not the same. And just made this giant cross-reference list and had prints on everything. I would test cables, on, go to dealers and ships and uh, check cables and um, have to uh, um, buy a lot of samples and check them. And, and that's how we how I got started. I did it all on my own uh, for about six months before I actually started the company. And then I would, and I also, back in the day, dealers would receive a cable from an OEM, but once you took it out of the package, there was no identification to it. So we came up with a numbering system so you could tell from it's embossed on the cable so that you knew what the part number was. And so you could cross-reference it. If the cable is a half inch shorter, though, don't you have to add a sleeve or something like, or, or do you just make them all a little well, longer? We would, we wouldn't. I would never go shorter. In other words, if it might be a quarter inch longer, half inch longer, it'd be in millimeters. That's how close it would be, especially wow. uh, on spinal, say back and spinal cables. Now, you know, over the years, we've lost a lot of cables. You know, we have throttle by wire now. We have uh, electronics for speedometers or pickups. Um, and we have hydraulic clutches, but cables are still a big part of our business, but the tools and, and accessories we developed along the way have, have picked up a lot of that. Uh, of course, yeah, our, our cables are equivalent in quality to all the OEMs. They all have nylon lining, um, so there's less friction. We use all the same quality of wire and, and housing. Uh, and we have a lot of, universal is a long terminology. We have a lot of, cables we've developed like for certain models of off-road bikes if you put a steering stabilizer on it you need to extend the throttle cable because of the way the routing is because of uh, the steering stabilizer so we'll make long plus lengths for cables on dirt bikes that are but it's the same as the stock cable only three inches or four inches longer 
Talk about the tools that you make. Well, the tools, uh, like I said earlier, I bought this other company that gave us another area to, for me to develop. And, and I always like, I made a lot of my own tools for the six days. Like, you, uh, you know, they're pretty commonplace now, like a rider wrench that you could, back then it was a two-stroke bike. So you wanted to incorporate a spark plug wrench into an axle wrench, maybe some other end type wrenches in one tool if you could. And so uh, we're always, and I looked at what mechanics would say, oh, you should, I should make a wrench to take this apart. Or this would be easier instead of using two wrenches, you can make one, you know, like for adjusting the tappets on, on the early Hondas. So uh, we developed, you know, with the, now with the adventure bikes, um, I know more and more are going to tubeless, but when they have a heavy carcass tire and the 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 to get the bead to break loose. You know, we developed a, a really nice wrench, uh, a tool. It's a tire iron, but a forged aluminum, like your handlebar levers are forged lever. You know, your clutch control levers. Mm-hmm. So we made a tool that's forged aluminum, but it'll go in between the bead to give you room, so you can break the the bead down if you had to change one of those six eight ply tires uh, on your adventure bike, put in a tube in it. If you get a really lightweight. Uh, we, different lightweight uh, wrenches. We did a set of titanium end wrenches, something I always wanted to do, really light. I've always, because of my six-day things, you had to carry your tools with you. So yeah, and back then we called a fanny pack, a belt that you'd wear. And so you want to try to make that thing as light as possible. So when we found a good vendor uh, that could make some titanium wrenches that were in the big picture, relatively inexpensive to what some other tie, tie wrenches were. And so we have a set of tie wrenches and wrenches that are about 140 bucks now, 150 bucks at retail. Um, but they're nice, lightweight wrenches. They're, they're not designed for everyday use. You know, you don't want to try to loosen a rusted on a bolt, but it, for, you know, everyday just maintenance on your bike in your fanny pack, they're a great tool, but it's half the weight of carrying regular wrenches. Um, and we made these lightweight forged uh, tire irons. So, yeah, we just keep looking for little notches, uh, a lot of different pullers and uh, suspension tools. You know, the suspension on the bikes now, uh, there's, there is maintenance on the suspension, so we do all the seal drivers and uh, different components, different wrenches for taking the uh, shocks apart and, and so on. Do you find there's a change in demand for tools now that we're, you know, people are probably working on their bikes less. I think that's, that's my sort of me imagining that just with the, I think, well, I think, no, I think people are working on their bikes more. We saw over the last 18 months, it has gone crazy. And that, in fact, that's a problem. We, if, if I could have looked at a crystal ball two years ago, we are so low on inventory. And as soon as it comes in, it goes out uh, because of, I think the last, we've had a big spike and people fool, maybe dragging out their old bikes and working on them. Um, it's just been, we can't keep up right now. And we don't know how long it's continue. They, they, every, the talking industry, oh, this is, we're going to have this, this growth and, and use for the next 18 months, two years. Uh, so, you know, it's real hard. We have to work with our vendors. It used to be three to five months out lead time on we're getting products. Well, now we're out a year because everyone's so backed up and, and prices have gone up considerably with materials and, and just freight. You know, the, a lot of our stuff come, I have to say I have, a lot of it comes from Taiwan and a lot comes from China. And 
it's taking longer to get the product and the prices have been escalating over the last uh, year. It's kind of bizarre with uh, COVID, isn't it? You, you know, yeah. to think that the motorcycle industry was, it was really, it was hurting so bad. And then right. all of a sudden you get COVID, which I thought when it was happening, I thought, oh no, what is this going to do to the motorcycle industry? Obviously, mm-hmm. because this is what I do and, and this is what I love. And all of a sudden it explodes and everybody's right. blindsided. Exactly. Yeah. We were all the OEMs, you know, the, traditionally the new bikes would be coming out about now, but they've introduced because they ran out of inventory, they started introducing 22s, you know, a month or two ago, and they can't keep them on the floor. Yeah. They're gone. Um, and I don't know how many changes there are. Uh, if there's just new graphics from an 2021, I'm not sure. I haven't really looked at all the new models yet. Uh, so, But you told me before that you saw this trend once before and you sort of forgot about it. Yeah, this is back, well... Here we have our twentieth anniversary, twenty-year anniversary of nine eleven coming up here in just another ten days, and um, when that hit, everything went you know traveling by air. They weren't they were staying close to home. They they were riding the motorcycles a lot back then. Now we didn't have restrictions on restaurants and campgrounds and all these other things that were closing COVID uh, hotels and so on. But a lot of people. Uh, RV business went crazy 20 years ago, uh, and as, as it has now, uh, because people were staying close to home or venturing here you know, domestically. So uh, if I'd been a little bit more astute, I would have figured it out when this thing hit and, and doubled up on my product. But that's hindsight now. And I, but mm-hmm. we're still doing fine. It's just that we have a lot of people, pend up demand, and also we can't fulfill the orders in a timely manner like what we what we're accustomed to doing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you, you, I think you sort of said a couple of times. You mentioned something about um, you know it's being made in Taiwan, almost apologetic. Um, why is that? Well, um, we over the years to be competitive because I what I do is three step distribution. We'll manufacture and warehouse product, sell to distributors, who then sell to the dealer, the retailer. Well, um, to be competitive, we had to start outsourcing things. And over the years here in the United States, we've lost so much of our manufacturing capabilities and it's gone offshore. Um, even raw materials, steel, uh, isn't being made here like it used to be made you know, 30, 40 years ago mm-hmm. um, for, a, for a number of different reasons. So we ended up having to, to chase better pricing and we've tried India we we've done I've always done a lot in Taiwan because that's where the cables were made and and we couldn't find anyone in the United States to do the same quality of work for the price and that's and that's holds true even today and I'm, I'm hoping that maybe things will change now after what we've gone through that more things will be moved back to the United States I just don't know um, or I should say North America not just the United States um, so we weren't so reliant on, on foreign countries. Mm. The thing is, I mean, China makes stuff for like the dollar store, you know, it makes very low quality stuff, but they also make Apple products. Oh, they make, we, the factories in, in China and the people of China are fantastic. It's just the government in China. And I, I'm going to tell you that whether I get right. censored or not, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we have a great relationship with so many people in China. Um, and, uh, 
and they, 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 they can turn stuff around so much quicker than us. And I don't know if it's because they're subsidized by the government more, but tooling is about half the cost and half the time. At least it used to be up until this last year, uh, finer than it was having trying to have it made domestically. Mm-hmm. We also don't have the, uh, the facilities here. You know, so much is over the years has been uh, a ban. You know, changed to uh, gone offshore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whatever the reason is behind it, I mean, that's that's a whole other topic, isn't it? The, the fact of the right. matter is, they're quite capable of making quality. Like, like what I'm saying is, being made in Taiwan isn't saying that it's being made in low quality. It's, it's your standards. You set the standard. Right. They make and, it. And in Taiwan, it, it used to be after the Second World War. Uh, you know, they the especially the United States did everything they could to help Japan get going again, even though they bombed us and or we bombed them and every vice versa. Yeah. But, you know, they really invested a lot in Japan and J- Japan really stepped it up. Look, look at Honda. Look at so many companies mm-hmm. that have developed after the Second World War. And uh, Taiwan uh, started improving their quality. And um, it was back in the day, it was Japan. At first, Japan wasn't thought out of being good quality. And then as people got confidence in, in the Japanese product, they needed something, they wanted something cheaper than went to Taiwan. And then from Taiwan, I went to China. So China has just, uh, has really stepped it up with technology. And, and you mentioned Apple, look at what Apple has there and, and all the other companies. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of the epitome of quality, you know, whether you're right. an Apple fan or not, it, it is, right? And, you know, they have a reputation right. for it. But I, and that's, I think it goes back to the, the founders of Apple and, and what the perfection they had to have, or they felt they had to have. Chris, what do you know now about riding and, and about the motorcycle industry that you didn't know years ago? Well, I mentioned this earlier. It's a large industry, but a small industry. I just, uh, I'm the, over the years, uh, some of the passion has gone away, but it's also come back. I, I don't know how to explain that. For a while, some large, uh, I would say, corporations thought, well, we're going to get in the motorcycle business. Perfect example, Harley Davidson, when it was sold years ago, the AMF, and that didn't work out because they didn't have the passion for it. And then when the employees bought it back, you know, look at how it's, and it got a lot of government assistance also, but it came back. So there's, there's people that are passionate about motorcycles that are, they got in the business because they like motorcycles. Um, And I think there's still a lot of that. But then there's also groups that are maybe in automotive groups that own, I'll say, 10 car dealerships. Well, they'll buy, start buying some motorcycle dealerships. I'll try to run like a car dealership, but it's, it's not the same. You, you need that passion. And I think the passion is still there, but it's not as much of it as it was back when I first started. It's so interesting you said that because th- that's why I wanted to talk to you today is because I, I really, I like stories like this and, and like people to understand where, where a company comes from, like with Motion Pro comes from that passionate rider, that young Chris Carter that was out there um, riding because you love to ride. And then you want to, you want to spend every day, you know, sort of sniffing the, the fumes of, of uh, motorcycling and you find a way to do it and, and you're still doing it. I mean, you're, you know, Motion Pro is still doing, still has that passion. Right. Well, and I think, and I try to find folks there that have that passion uh, that want to continue and, and uh, 
eat. And there's a sticker one time, eat, sleep, and drink motorcycles, <laughs> eat, sleep, and ride or whatever. But that's, that's what I love. And, uh, and we try to support so many different events uh, and racers. And in fact, I'm leaving. Uh, I, I like all types of motorcycles and racing, not that I race anymore myself. But, you know, this weekend is coming up. Labor Day weekend is the, uh, it's, I think it's the 50th running of the uh, uh, Springfield Mile, Mile Racetrack. And, and so, and I, I, we support a lot of those riders and I haven't been there for like 15 years. So I'm leaving tomorrow to go to Springfield mile, but, and then get home from that and I'll do the Colorado 600, which is a fundraiser that they have starting in Crested Butte, Colorado week of riding and all the money for that is raised is to keep the trail system and, and uh, things available for people to ride and call and off-road in Colorado. So, and we help different organizations like the AMA, you know, with their events and rider rights. And uh, when clubs have any type of a event, we'll, uh, you know, help them with donations or prizes or whatever. So. Do you think there's still room in the industry for somebody to start a company like, like what you did? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and as I mentioned, I have three step distribution and what's happened though is um, a lot of product now because of the, the way things are being distributed, say through Amazon, um, there's someone might develop something and, and just sell it direct, you know, make it in their garage and get started that way and see how it goes. Yeah. So, uh, um, but we, we're kind of limited because we have this three-step distribution. Everyone has to make, have a slice, a slice of that pie. So, but I'm not in a position to really be able to facilitate individual orders, you know, direct. Mm-hmm. And, and I like to have, I want dealers to, to we need dealers out there to have motorcycles available and a place for people to go and look at motorcycles, sit on motorcycles. So I really believe in brick and I'll call brick and mortar shops, people that are and to have dealerships and it's a place to go hang out to, and for, uh, for people to experience motorcycles. Yeah. So, and, and that's why when people tell me that they try on a helmet at a dealer and they order it online cause it's cheaper, I, I sort of tear my hair out because, yeah, um, you know, people wonder where, where all this stuff goes. They say, well, why don't we have that anymore? Well, why don't we have these, these dealers, you know, on every corner? Well, think about where you're right. going for you to buy your stuff. You know, right. if, if exactly. you want them to stick around, pay a few more dollars, talk to somebody, build a relationship, you know, with the parts person. It's a, it's a much, much better way to go. Right. No, I totally agree. And, and you need that dealer. You need that dealer. If you're doing the Yukon highway and you need a tire. You're halfway up through Alaska. You need a tire. You're not going to get it from Amazon the next day. Yeah. So you need that dealership someplace to to, to have a tire for you. Um, so, and that and that's all the way across the country. Yeah. And, and Amazon is so faceless and, and uncaring, really. It, you know, as exactly. far as you as the individual, this guy riding a motorcycle somewhere. Whereas if you've got a relationship with your parts guy at your dealership, they're going to know you likely by name and they're going to have sure. some sort of vested interest in, in what you're right. doing. And, and, but it is it, Amazon and companies like that have, have made it so easy to rely on them and you have it the next day uh, if, if it's available where the dealer, he can't stock everything. Yeah. But but it's up to the dealer to do whatever he can, know his customers and have product there that that he, in anticipation of that customer walking through the door and paying attention to him. Yeah. And I've found that um, before when there's a huge price difference, I've just mentioned it to them and they'll go, okay, you know, they'll match it and, and they seem to do it. I and mean, obviously this depends right. on the dealer, but I mean, I think it's the type of thing that dealers are doing to try and keep people coming in the doors. Sure. 
Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, you know, the, uh, we have a real challenge. We have, we have about uh, 30 patents now, but we also have a lot of imitation product and a lot of people even copying our stuff. We've had some counterfeit products come in from China, sold through Amazon uh, that were counterfeit and even even had a patent number on it. With your but, name on it. Yeah. And we and then we would order some of these parts because it, the guy, well, we get some back. Hey, I brought bought this online, blah, blah, blah. But it broke when I first used it. Well, we'd get it and investigate it and see if the parting lines weren't the same place as ours. Material was not the same. So we'd have to backtrack and see where it came from and get those guys shut off. So we spent a lot of time enforcing are doing the best we can to protect our brand and the quality of our products. Mm. Um, and that, that's, that's taken a lot of, that's taken a lot of energy in the last few years. Yeah. I hear this more all the time. So as a consumer, how can you protect yourself? What's the best thing to do? How can you tell the real from the imitation? I, I think yeah, maybe uh, buying from people you trust. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. So. You're, um, you're still riding now, aren't you? Yeah, in fact, like I said, I'll be going to Colorado here in a week or two. Um, and uh, I haven't done much this last summer. Uh, I, every year for the last 20-some years, uh, we do a ride down in Mexico. I'm sure you've heard the name Malcolm Smith. He started 26 years ago funding an orphanage in, in that, on the Baja Peninsula. And so uh, in a way to give back to Mexico for his success of of all of his racing experiences in Mexico. Um, and, you know, by the way, this is a 50th anniversary right now of the movie on any Sunday coming out. Uh, that's a great movie. And that's a great, for any of your listeners who, who really don't know anything about the six days or motocross or anything, if, even though that movie's 50 years old, it's timeless. Uh, it's something that I think anybody who rides a motorcycle, whether it's street or dirt would enjoy. Um, and it's, it's, it's a great history. On any ride. Sunday, I know. It's a great, yeah. great movie. So anyway, Malcolm and I have become been friends since, well, riding the six days and, and knowing him about 70, 1974. Anyway, when he started doing that, I couldn't afford it at first because I was pretty much a one-man band at my shop. But as 20-some years ago, I started going every year. So we, we crisscross the Baja Peninsula on dirt bikes. We do stay in hotels every night. And the money we raise... Uh, and you can do it for a lot less money, but it's it's for charity. It's for the children. And so we spend one day afternoon at the orphanage and there's usually 50 kids that they've had in the orphanage. And now we have some kids because it's been going on for so long. And I can say we, because I've been a part of it for so long, um, that we even have two in dental school. We have someone just graduated wow. from college. And these are kids that were abandoned at a young age in, in someplace in Mexico, mostly Tijuana. Um, that we've watched grow up at this orphanage. So it's really heartwarming. And it's, you know, you, you can really justify riding your motorcycle around Mexico. Yeah. How old are you now, Chris? I'm 70. How old are you going to be when you stop riding? I don't know. It's not in the plans. No, I'll, 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 but I'll, I'll do this. I'll ride my age so I can keep riding. <laughs> I remember you telling me about that. You want to tell that story? I'm not sure which floor that when I had said. <laughs> I think of the Malcolm sticker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Malcolm, uh, one year we were in Mexico and this was a dealer event 
and he was that he's hosting. This is Milton and Smith. we're down at Tecate, Mexico. And it, we gathered there as a small group, maybe 30, 40 people. And we're going to ride to a place called Mike Sky Ranch, spend a night and come back the next day. And we'd also go by the orphanage. And this is just a short three-day ride, and not, not the week-long event. Anyway, um, we all get in there. We're at this cantina, restaurant, place we're all staying. And uh, Malcolm gets has a little riders meeting. And he says, now, everyone, really ride your age tomorrow because it's raining now. So the desert's going to be perfect, but ride your age. Well, not an hour into the ride the next day, Malcolm takes off. And he's, where's he going? He's hauling ass, just hauling ass. And he just misjudged this thing. And this is about 15 years ago now. So he's 80. Yeah, he's 80. Um, or 79 or 80. He's 80. And so he was probably 60-something then. And he said the night before, now, you guys all ride your age. Well, for whatever reason, he hit this root in the ground, got up on one wheel on the Okay, he did a handstand basically, gets it back down, and he almost saved it and hits something else, falls over. And over the years, Malcolm has had a lot of injuries, and he had a steel, he has a steel rod in his leg, and he fell off and he didn't know if he, he, he was really hurt. But we were 30 miles from the coastest highway. So <laughs> he said, Get me back on the bike. And his bike was wrecked. Uh, it was, and so we found this ditch. So we could lower another, lower the bike into the ditch, like a culvert, and then picked him up and set him on the bike. And he knew some shortcuts. And he, we followed him out to the road and we had called and we had a car there uh, and they got him in the car and, and drove him back up to uh, Ensenada and they crossed the border in Tijuana and he got to his, he has his own surgeon and, and this, he, they had to operate on his leg. But uh, he was very bunged up. But after that, we've always, I've always managed to ride your age. He made a sticker for it, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. So, so ride your age means not, not so much that you don't have the skills. It's, it's how hard the earth becomes it, as, exactly. as we age. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I've been riding for over 50 years and it's, it's my life. It's my passion. I have so many good friends because of motorcycles. Uh, I don't know what where I would have ended up without motorcycles. Chris, this has been great fun. Thank you very much for taking the time. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you, you thinking of me and I hope uh, your listeners will enjoy this. And if I can help with anything else, please don't hesitate. Chris Carter from Motion Pro. And we've got some great photos that Chris gave us uh, in the show notes for this episode on our website, as always, at adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio.
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, of course, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, if you're not doing it already, we need your support. Adventure Rider Radio is built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. Don't just sit back and listen. Jump in there and support. Go to AdventureRiderRadio.com and click on support. We'd also love a five-star review at iTunes or anywhere else you find the podcast. Um, That helps other people find the show. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 